For centuries, Americans have gathered together to celebrate the holidays, reaffirm family ties, and wish goodwill to all men. But this Christmas, Santa's got a brand new bag. Now you gotta listen to this, man, because this concerns you, all right? Yeah. What do a stewardess, a gun runner, a bail bondsman, an ex-con, a federal agent, and a beach bunny have in common? You gonna come in on this thing with me? You got to be prepared to go all the way. They're all chasing a half million in cash. Half a million dollars will always be missed. Let him get the money and then just take it from him. She's trying to play your ass against me, huh? That was fun. Yeah, I don't think it's a spot. So she and your girlfriend, that what you felt? Well, I hope you felt appropriately guilty afterwards. I do. There's only one question. Man, I ain't getting in this trunk. You ain't gonna be in here no more than 10 minutes. Man, I ain't riding in no trunk for no minute. Who's playing who? Let's make a deal. Yeah, so what's she gonna give us? Are you gonna offer to set him up? Yeah. I thought doing something stupid. Pam Greer, Samuel L. Jackson, Robert Forster, Bridget Fonda, Michael Keaton, and Robert De Niro. Is she dead? I, I, I... Yes or no, is she dead? Pretty much. Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. When you absolutely, positively got to kill every mother in the room, except no substitutes. Nothing gets between me and my AK. <laughs> Woo! Just on Jackie Brown. Um, <laughs> uh, just, just so, just to preface this, preface this. Um, obviously, I have a limit here, forty minutes, I think. So, just be ready when it cuts us out to like just click a link and come back in. Okay, uh, so we just the same link. We don't have to do a new link or anything like that. No, no, no. Okay. Um, how's my audio? Does it sound good? Too low? Too? You sound all right? A little bit too low, just a little bit too low. Uh, I can't adjust anything, so you're gonna have to adjust. It's better. Well, yeah, that's talk, yeah. talk at a regular level. Is this, is this better now? Yeah, it's better. Too low. Aaron's too high. Go turn, turn your shit down. What? Turn your shit down. Turn my shit down. How are you? <laughs> you know what? Anyway, welcome should to. I, should, should, huh? Should I make myself a drink? Yeah, make, make yourself a, isn't it Whiskey Week or something like that or something? It was, it was World Whiskey Day yesterday. Yeah, okay. I had me a, a glass of Jura 18. When is it going to be a World Drinking Juice Day? Um, I, think, I think we are all right without it. Yeah, okay. Welcome to another download podcast show. <laughs> um, on today's podcast, we have guests. Um, good friend and amazing music producer Sagnanti Hall. What's up, Sag? 
How's it going? Glad to be here. And um, at his at his suggestion, we're doing um, a movie I hadn't seen in a, quite a long time, mm-hmm. the 1997 film Jackie Brown, starring Pam Bre- Greer and Samuel Jackson and Michael Keaton, Michael Bowen, Robert Forster, who we'll talk about very much on this podcast, I think. Um, I'm going to read the synopsis real quick. You ain't going to say Robert De Niro? Yeah, I'm going to give him love too. Relax, man. There's a lot of people on this. I can't list everybody. Anyway, when flight attendant Jackie Brown, played by Pam Greer, is busted smuggling money for her arms dealer boss, which is incorrect, Ordell Robbie, played by Samuel Jackson, Agent Ray Nicolette, played by Michael Keaton, and Detective Mark Dargis, played by Michael Bowen, want to help bring down Robbie. Facing jail time for her silence or death for her cooperation, Brown decides instead to double-cross both parties make and make off with the smuggled money. Meanwhile, she enlists the help of bondsman Max Cherry, played by Robert Forster, a man who loves her. This film is an adaptation of Elmore Leonard's 92 novel, Rum Punch. It is the only featured length film that Tarantino has adapted um, from a previous work. Um, obviously written and directed by Quentin. Uh, the budget was $12 million and box office, surprisingly, I'll be honest, I thought it made more money than this. Only $74.7 million. Um, that's kind of surprising because I thought this was would have done like at least a hundred or hundred and fifty. You think this is more uh, more popular now, like in hindsight? You know, like in '97, it wasn't as popular as possibly ten years later to now. Yeah, I think so. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. I think. I mean, this came after Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And and Reservoir Dogs. So there was a a lot of hype. You know, around around Quentin Tarantino and and what's going to be the follow up to Pulp Fiction? And then he went in a different direction with uh, with this one. Yeah, and I, th- I think at the time people were expecting another Pulp Fiction, and now that like years have passed and people kind of look at this whole catalog, they they appreciate it a little differently now. Yep. You know, no one is like not looking at it as this just follow Pulp Fiction. We need Pulp Fiction too. Yep. And, and um, let's let's put uh, also um, out there that. This was a kind of a rare, a, a rare movie in the sense that there was a black action hero as a woman um, playing the lead role, which was kind of unusual for '97, to be honest. So, I think there was a lot of things that Quentin um, was kind of making statements on in this movie, and I think that was kind of the, right up front. So, on on top of all this, you know this. I'm just. I just looked up really quickly. Mm. This year, blockbusters from the same year: Men in Black, yeah. Jurassic Park, The Lost World, Liar Liar, Air Force One, Titanic, yeah. Star Wars: A New Hope re-release, The Godfather. What? That can't be right. Anyway, um, Face Off, Batman and Robin. So a lot of big name stuff. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, they had to run. They had. They ran up against some serious competition. During oh, the Bond, the Bond movie came out. Contact, which was huge. Yeah, Con Air and the Conspiracy. Yeah, I mean that's a bunch of huge movies that year. Yep, yep. And a, and, and a shout out to the casting director. Do we know her name? Uh, that's a good question. 
Because um, I, I noticed it immediately in the opening credits. Who was? What was her name? Is it Jackie Brown? <laughs> it is Jackie Brown. Yeah. Are you kidding? Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's dope. I remember seeing that in there. <laughs> yep. Oh, okay. So she's kind of narcissistic. Kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it was a complete coincidence because yeah, probably because the, because the character in 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 the in the book that it was based on was uh, was named Jackie Burke. And, and then when he decided he was going to write it for for Pam Greer, he he you know he expe- like specifically wrote it for Pam Greer when he changed yeah. it. Yeah. And he was thinking Foxy Brown, so Jackie Brown. No, I, I, th- I think she said if I'm going to do the casting for this film, this this movie kind of felt like as I was watching it, like without even knowing what what you just mentioned, say. I sat there and I was watching this and I was like, you know, this feels like a movie that Quentin did like this thing where he was like, you know what? I just want to make a movie full of people who I've always wanted to work with. Just just people who like haven't been in my other movies, but I really wanted to work with. And, you know, everyone knows his love for 70s um, genre movies. And Pam Greer is like, legend in in the 70s i mean that's if you don't have her in a movie then it's not being made and it just seemed like he just said look i love all of these guys for different reasons i want to put them i want to put them all in the movie together and he just did saying the pieces didn't don't fit no i'm saying he made he made a he did a golden state warrior move he 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 assembled his (laughs) his dream team so you know. By the way, have you seen Pam Greer's like? Because you know, you look her up on IMDb. Have you seen her photo on IMDb? No. It's still that '70s shot with a fro. Oh, word. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, it's time for an update. Bro. I'm living in the past. Um. Well, I mean, you know, she's known for it, so that's you know, it's kind of like I'm sure at some point Angela Davis didn't always have an afro, but she's known for that, so. Um, when people think of Pam Greer, they think of the iconic the '70s black exploitation yeah, films. Yeah, yeah, you know? it, it would yeah. be like a shame of like Fred Williamson suddenly had, you know, a box fade or something like that. You know, so. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if you like noticed. Um, speaking of black exploitation films, um, I mean, in, I only heard one or two of these songs, but um, apparently in the soundtrack they have about four of them from uh, Coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, throughout yeah. the uh, throughout this film. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely trying to, I guess, pay homage, homage to uh, to those films. There's a lot of nods to those films. I mean, Tarantino does that a lot in, in all of his movies. He has references to other movies, whether it's like using a, a shot from another movie or, you know, uh, even like quoting lines. But yeah, the font in the beginning of the movie, if you look at the lettering, it's, it's done to kind of match, right. uh, you know, her, her earlier work, Foxy Brown. Right. And there's definitely a lot of songs from that soundtrack. Well, they also say the open the opening scene where she's um they have a side view of her she's walking through the uh yeah, the airport the yeah they said they yeah. pulled that from the graduate like that's yeah shot for shot pulled from the graduate yeah, yeah. So, um but I also feel like this film um it's not not obviously a, a nod to a black exploitation but like I get this film noir vibe off of it as well mm-hmm. like uh, I'm just watching it and I mean towards the end I mean I don't want to give away too much stuff but I got this feeling of um two of the characters in this film matching up with like uh ilsa and um rick from casablanca oh, oh. but we'll w- once we get to the end of the film we'll 
<laughs> I'll explain that in more detail. I just been, I just watched Casablanca like twice in the last two weeks. Can we do that? They got some songs in there. You know what? As I was watching it, I sat there. I was like, "Damn, can we do this?" Because that would be kind of dope. But that's one of my that's one of my favorite films, man. Well, all right, we'll add it to the list of projects that we're supposed to be doing on this podcast. Just, just so you, just so you know, Seg, I, I did text uh, Darren yesterday that we need to do Moana. I don't know if you want to get on on that. Moana. I haven't seen Moana actually. <laughs> Me either. What? Yeah. Me. Either. I watched that thing like a dozen times, man. That's such a good video. Anyway, anyway, I'm very disappointed in both of y'all, but we have to get back to the point. <laughs> uh, so the, I mean, we kick. So it kicks off with this that that side view hearse. Walking through, and, and, and so the song across 110th Street, Bobby like, Womack. no, that is one of the dopest songs ever written. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's, it is, it's like, it's like, I'd say it's like number six on the all time, you got to play this at a bar, black barbecue song. Mm. You know what I mean? In, in, in Harlem or just anywhere? Yeah, uh, no, you got to do it anywhere. <laughs> like in Harlem, you'll go to jail if you don't play it. But in anywhere else, you know, it's kind of. Do kinda... we feel bad? Do we feel bad that, you know, across 110th Street is clearly about New York and Harlem and this movie's based in L.A.? <sighs> well. Does that take a point off the rating we're giving us at the end of the podcast? Take a point off so. for, for L.A. I, I don't think so, because I think, I think that he was focusing on the on the lyrics on the yep. song, because if, if you if you listen to the lyrics, I think that song is hugely important to the to the plot, right? Because they use it twice. Yep. You know, they actually like bookend the movie with it because it starts with it and then it closes with it and it closes in a big way because she's literally driving in the car, singing the lyrics. Right. You know, so it's like it's like it, it steps outside of being soundtrack and then becoming part of the actual film. So I think when you whenever the director does that, you got to say, okay, well, why are they doing that? And if you read mm-hmm. the lyrics, it kind of matches. Uh, a lot of the plot points. With, uh, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, specifically um, across 110th Street, pimps trying to catch a woman that's weak. Yep. Yeah, that's. I mean, I think that's the line. <laughs> right. Uh, people taking this this woman for for uh, granted, and you know, she's the hero. Yeah, and even doing whatever I had to do to survive. I'm not saying mm-hmm. what I did was right. Trying to take out the ghetto was a day to day to day fight. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's exactly what her, her character has to do throughout the movie. And there's a, so the song also um, was also used in a movie by the same name across 110th Street with um, Yafet Koto and Anthony Quinn. And I think there is a little bit of an association by proxy there for that film as well. So, um, so I don't, I, be honest, yeah, I think. The song is more important than the fact that where it supposedly represents. But it was it was like amazing that that you know we got uh, Tarantino probably should get a lot of credit. Like he should be in like the Hall of Fame for films with great soundtracks because he he, he does a great job of um, like I'd love to see his his Spotify list. Like I'd love to be grab his phone and see what stuff he's listening to on a regular basis. You think this is um 
I mean, because usually you have a music supervisor for these things. So how much of it do you attribute to him versus that person? A hundred percent. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's very, very. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think he writes because a lot of it is, it's it's similar to his style. So you see that like he has a lot of these, these references, whether it's like shots from other movies or whether it's actors he pulled in from like previous roles and he's done that and he does that here. I'm sure we'll talk about it, Robert Forrester, uh, Pam Greer. But he, I think he does that with the music as well. So in, in addition to the songs being, you know, a lot of 70s songs, a lot of throwback kind of things that were in black exploitation films, kind of homage to that. There's also songs that are in other great 70s films yep. that are in the soundtrack that he pulls from. So a lot of it is his kind of like just looking back at films that he's appreciated in their soundtracks. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's writing with these songs in mind. You know, mm. uh, a lot of the times if he's writing a scene and going, okay, this song, well, Quentin, Quentin, I don't know if I'm going to take uh, these guys' uh, word for it. So why don't you uh, hit us up? <laughs> you, can, you can come and get it from the horse's mouth. Yeah. As he calls into the show next week. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of writers do that. They, I mean, I do that, actually. When I write, a lot of my, the soundtrack really informs a lot of the attitude of the script. And, and you know, you might even steal, like, certain songs – like are very um, uh, illustrative, so you you might take some of what they're doing in the song if it fits and, and add it to the actual screenplay or the or the or the movie on some level. So well, yeah, and I think I think in this movie in particular, I mean the music the music is just it's front and center. There's not even any subtlety to to how they're using songs. Like they reference the songs. You know, there's there's a scene where Pam Greer and, and Robert Forrester are talking and. And you know he's he's like oh this is nice what is this and she's like the Delphonics yeah you know? uh, and you know later on Sam Jackson's in the car with Robert Forrester and he's like you listen to Delphonics you know it's like <laughs> so there's a lot of things that are clearly like intended you know to be beyond just background music there's mm-hmm. even a scene actually in the in the movie where they're in they're in a record store and Foxy Brown the rapper is playing in the background mm-hmm. yeah like a subtle nod it's like oh you just wanted to incorporate. If it makes it, it's the only hip hop song in the entire movie. It's the only like non seventy yeah. song in the entire movie. Yeah, it didn't and, uh, it, didn't, it didn't break away too much. It didn't distract you too much though, which is no, it was done hard so to do. It's hard to do when you have like a very specific theme of music, and all of a sudden you throw in this random shit. Yeah, um, yeah. And here I, I, I was just like, yeah, no, this makes sense. Um, except for one, actually, one point. Um, it wasn't Foxy Brown. It was um when uh Max is walking out of the movie theater. And yeah. He played a song for like five seconds maybe, and I was just like. I don't know if that song ever came back. <laughs> it just it's seemed like <laughs> it's the song from the end of the movie. So yeah. like there's the, um, the song that actually plays during the credits at the end. Oh, of the it's always oh, it's, oh, it's the one that repeats it's Aragon, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, from Coffee, from Coffee soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's the one it was. All right. And there's a lot of there's a lot of like speculation about the intention of that because he's lo- he's leaving the movie theater, and the song that's playing at the end, you know, as he's leaving the theater is that song, mm. which then plays at the end of this movie. Is that so, was he, was that what he was watching? Yes, that's that's kind of actually one of the theories is that like he was watching perhaps he was watching the movie he was watching Jackie Brown, you know, and that, that gets into a lot of speculation about his character and whether or not his character like was omniscient and kind of knew what was going on beforehand and like kind of saw the movie before it happened. Well, he um, doesn't seem too panicked at any point in the movie, so <laughs> no. You know, um, so. As we move on deeper into this, uh, you know, the whole um, the whole scene with I, I, like I totally forgot that Chris Tucker was in this movie. Like 
I, I can remember they don't see him. You don't see him on screen, but you just hear his voice. And I'm like, you immediately know this is fucking Chris Tucker. But this was before um, this was before Rush Hour. And I think it was in between. Um, it's after Friday. After yeah, Friday. it was. At, yeah, it was in between Fridays and after and before Rush Hour. So he, this was kind of like his I think his test run for being in a big film and um, or bigger film on, on a mainstream level. And uh, he got, I mean, it was just messed up, dude. Like, <laughs> I love Strawberry. Cameo. <laughs> I love Strawberry 23, and they <laughs> fucking killed him to Strawberry 23. Strawberry yeah. Letter 23. I mean, come on. We, we, we've talked about this before with, like, um, songs that, like, are completely opposite of what's going on on the scene. Like, this is a very dark scene. That's a dark scene. But you scene. have this, like, yeah. you have this up-tempo, kind of happy song in the background. Yeah. And you knew it was coming because yeah. he was being so nice to him at the door. <laughs> it was just it, like, oh, The man. setup is so great. That, that's, that, that is, like, that's, that's the first scene, I think. I think they show flashes earlier on and how, like, because Sam Jackson's character in the movie is so charming, yeah. and he's so um, yeah. he's such a he has such a way with words, uh, and he's slick, and you you don't really see the the turn into the darkness until right. that scene, you right. know. Right. And it's like you're watching it, and you know what's gonna happen. Like you know, as he's talking, he's telling the story. You know, oh yeah, we got to meet with these Asians, man. You know, I need I need backup, and you know how these Asians are, man. I can't trust them. I just need to get. And he, he has this whole elaborate thing that makes sense. Yeah. And and you and you're with it. You're kind of like oh, maybe maybe, and then. They have that long shot, right? It's like one shot yep. after after the conversation, which yep. is a hilarious conversation, where they have the vintage Quentin Tarantino trunk shot, <laughs> uh, and it's like you know convincing him to get inside the trunk, and um, and then yeah, then it's one long shot, you know, and you, you, he just drives around, and you're like, oh, uh, and, and you know it, you know, the camera just hangs there, and as soon when the camera doesn't move and it doesn't cut, you're just like, oh man, this is, this is like why isn't it cutting? You know what I mean? He said it was a 10-minute drive away. Like, why is it not cutting the highway? <laughs> oh, it's just staying here. And then you kind of know, and it's just... You know it's messed up when someone can talk you into getting into a trunk, like, at, on, for any reason. And, you know, it's like, yeah, I just yeah. need you to get in that trunk. Just lay in the trunk. It's like, just going to be in there for a few minutes. Yeah. That's nothing good's ever going to happen when you got to be talking to Nothing, you. Nothing good ever happens when you with Bye. the sentence, you got out of a trunk. By, by a guy that has a, a long ponytail and a uh, braided goatee. We're we gonna get in the yeah. whole all which, of which, that. which apparently was Sam L. Jackson's idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, um, I mean, we skip over a little bit the the scene where he goes in to bail out um, Chris Tucker in the movie. In the first time we see Max Cherry. Um, like that scene there to me was like it was so um I don't even know how to explain it. I enjoyed watching the two of these dudes on screen kind of just go at it. Like the perfect it was almost like this perfect storm of you know of of, of who these two guys are as characters in, not just in this film but it, in most films that they they do, so they were there, kind of just going up against each other, you know, almost, uh, you know, two dudes, you know, got the ball down on a low block and you know trying you know trying to box him out, and the other dudes trying to keep him from laying the ball in, 
it was it was nice seeing these two guys on on the screen kind of going at each other and um it was a messed up scene too in a lot of ways just because you knew as the, the longer the conversation because max was very detail oriented so he's asking questions and as he's asking these questions you kind of know whoever this dude he's bailing out it's not going to work out well for him at the end some point down the road yeah and and there's also a lot of jockeying and like you know sam jackson's one of those dudes who just you could tell he kind of like wants to make it clear he's the man in yeah the room, you know and when, when he goes in there and he looks up and he sees uh you know um the big black dude he calls you know that mandingo looking nigga you got up there you know what i mean like it's like and, and it's tiny you know the actor tiny uh who's you know in friday and a bunch of other movies yeah played zeus and you know fought against against the hulk, hulk hogan in the movie in the 90s yep um and and he's just like he's like oh that that dude works for you he's like yeah that's that's winston yeah, and he's like, he's like i bet it was your idea to take that picture. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it's like and uh, with that smile on his face, and he didn't he answer the question, though. So, well. so yeah, and and Robert Forrester has his own power and and uh, and strength and his confidence in a in an extremely understated, subtle way. Like he's unafraid. He's he's a bail bondsman. Obviously, he's dealt with his own like you know share of, of dealing with crazy stuff, and you know he's not naive to to I think to what his character to what Sam Jackson's character is going to do and the kind of things that happen. I think he's he's used to that life. He doesn't really have any judgments on it either way, yep. you know. And I think at one point he basically, you know, he kind of explains to him what he does. He's like, "Look, it sounds to me like you're you're the kind of guy who wants to tell me, to, you know, to tell me how cool you are, essentially, you know. Uh, so if I had to guess it out, you know, know you're moving something, not, not drugs, something else. But obviously, whatever you're doing, you're successful. So more power to you, you know. Like he's very <laughs> just like, hey, do what do what you got to do. I'm gonna do what I got to do, you know. And he, I, I got, I, I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> And he also later on in the film, like when he's explaining like shit to uh, Pam Greer to Jackie, mm. he's just like, yeah. After he like picked her up and dropped her off from the from jail, he's like, yeah, yeah. I went to a guy's house and just sat there in his in his in his living room in the dark, smelled like cat piss, waiting for him to get back. And he's just like explaining this shit to her like it's matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. That's when he has his his uh his Sam Jackson in uh in Pulp Fiction moment where he's mm -hmm. like. I'm I'm ready to end all this stuff. I'm done. I want to walk away. Um, that yeah. doesn't end up happening, but but he has that moment. Yeah, I mean um, Robert Forrester. I mean he's um, he's an interesting dude. He's like he's played a lot of um, interesting characters, and and uh, this is a this was a this was a um, a really good cast for him. Um, he, he's, he, um, he kind of plays, he plays it very, um, straight, which is cool and perfect for like, he, he was all, he's almost like the opposite of Odell, right? Where Odell's this completely charming individual and as evil as he was, he, he could just talk you into doing things just, you like know, Trump. Yeah, um, whereas this guy was more straight, you know, business, not, no nonsense. Um, he's you could, not talking anybody else into anything. He's just kind of listening. Most yeah, of the time, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, although uh, his input into Jackie's plan was crucial in a lot of ways, you know, 
given her kind of like this place to kind of bounce this idea off and kind of work out details and and um, him being like the invisible man to the plan, which was you have a ghost in the background, Chris, um, and um, being like this invisible person, kind of no one's thinking about, which uh, was obviously important to um, to the plan. Um, I did enjoy seeing him on screen. I, I hadn't seen that much of him in a while, and yeah. He was a, a big, the big kind of guy in the seventies. Had a big stretch there, and then yep. just, uh, you know, disappeared. Um, Tarantino's done that a few times, um, and I guess you could argue he kind of did that with Pam Greer here as well. Although she had, she had more of a steady career, yep. just in smaller roles. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, yeah, his character is is, is critical, and and uh, you can kind of argue whether or not he's kind of gets played in a way by by Pam Greer. I think he's. Uh, a will, I think he willingly participates and does things maybe he wouldn't ordinarily do mm-hmm. because he kind of because he falls for her. Um, she's exceptionally charming, and you know it's the way that they I think they play it in the movie. It's it's hard to know where uh, where Jackie's coming from. It's hard to know what her end game is. For end game is is she playing? There's a point where you're like, is she playing Ordell? Is, right. she, is she playing the police? Um, is she play, you know is she playing Max? And you, you kind of don't find out until the very, very end. Right. Literally until the, the last scene, second to last scene, um, you know, what her motives are. And I think she's kind of perpetually changing as the movie goes on. I think um, something, something I would have liked to have seen and it just a little more backstory mm. for her. I mean, maybe that's intentional as well. For mm. How did she meet and get involved with Ordell? Why is she running drugs and money well, for him? Like all that kind of they stuff. They explained that she had like she was arrested at some point earlier, you know, um, earlier, like when she was younger. And uh, basically she got to a place where the best job she could get was this, this, uh, you know, flight attendant and like the worst airline making what, $16,000 a year plus yeah. benefits. Yeah. And so, you know, th- there's a scene with her and, and Max where, you know, she basically says, uh, starting over to her is scarier to, than, than Ordell is. So, mm-hmm. you know, so they kind of explain that, you know, she she doesn't really have any other options. So this this job, which like she, I don't think she loves, but like needs, is 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 the best she can get. And so she's kind of. How did she, how did she connect with Ordell? Like, did he? I don't remember. If, like they said, he helped her out with something in the past. They don't give that backstory. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I, th- I think, you know, he connects with her, and she's the one who's. I think, that, and one of the main reasons I think that he ends up, you know, trusting her. Um, and keeping her alive and not, you know, letting her when, when when they he intends to kill her. Obviously, they kind of follow after he kills Beaumont, Chris Tucker's character. You know, he basically set it up to to kill her. Uh, you know, when he bails her out, which which comes to like an awesome couple lines mm. for the interaction between the two of them. That's that's an amazing scene. Yeah, um, but I think a lot a large percentage of it is just he he needs her. Like he's at this point. She's the connection to uh, to Cabo, right? She's like where the, the half million dollars is, and he has no other way. He has no one else he can trust to go out there and get it and bring it back. So I think that's a piece of it. I think if, if he didn't require that half a million dollars, you know, maybe she doesn't she doesn't make it. Hmm. But I think oh, man. Yeah, I also think that they have a they have a liking to each other. Like he kind of, you know, I think he likes her and wants to. She says at some point, I think she said he wants to trust me. You know, yeah. so um, and I think he also thinks he's. 
you know, the smartest guy in the room at points, and I think he thinks even if she does something sideways, I'll be I'll be ahead of her. Yeah. Well, I mean, Robert De Niro points out something about that kind of alludes to Ordell's kind of mentality in the first place anyway. And he says it basically when he asks, why does he keep Melanie around? Which I couldn't even figure it out either. I was like, because she's a pain in the ass. But that's his white surfer girl. Yeah. (laughs) His white surfer. I, I mean, think he says he's like, yeah, she's my blonde surfer girl. I think he liked having yeah, yeah. he liked having her. Yeah, like like she's an asset, you know. <laughs> but but still, yeah, man, she she's so Bridget Fonda plays this role perfectly. Yeah, because yeah. she is annoying as shit. She is annoying, and she yeah. deserves every little bit of what she gets. Lewis, <laughs> Lewis, did you park here, Lewis? Did you park here, Lewis? I did, did not expect for him to turn around and shoot her, but. Oh, I knew that was happening as soon as he started getting aggravated. I was already like, gone, man. Yeah. But he said something like, you know, he's like, he's like, I don't have to trust Melanie, but I right. just have to trust that Melanie's going to be Melanie. Right, right. You know, so he basically is like, I know who she is. And he's he's known her for a while because they make they make reference to um, De Niro's character. Like, he was like, when was the last time I saw you? Like, seven years ago? Right. So, um, you know, they, they he obviously knows her for a while. Um, and... I, obviously, he thinks he can control her. I think that's part of it is that he's got people around who I think he believes he can control. And if you look at it, for the most part, you know, he's smarter than a lot of the, the you know, the characters around him. He's right. savvier. Yep. And he's also willing to go a level that they're not necessarily willing to go quicker than they are, which right. I think is, is what makes him, you know, extra extra devious. Is that, like, he won't hesitate to be like, all right, well, sorry, I'm going to have to kill you now. Yeah. Well, speaking of... um. He's smarter than most of the characters. I, I was, I'm kind of stunned at uh, Robert De Niro in this role, kind of like a henchman, <laughs> not very smart. Because like, look at the director roles he usually plays. Like, he's the top dog. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I was, I, I'm just, that might have taken me out of my comfort zone. He, he, so he wanted to work with Quentin Tarantino. I saw an interview about this, and and uh, and and Harvey Weinstein and the Weinstein brothers, who produced a lot of Tarantino stuff. So you know those guys are going to be involved in any 90s stuff we, we talk about mm. um they they handed the script over to, to de niro and um you know for, for lewis and he uh it's, it's a small small character but when when him and tarantino were talking about it tarantino said basically there's not a, a ton of like lines in there you, like a lot of what your character has to be just like describing who he is is just through his body language yeah he basically said, "If I'm if I'm describing this character, he's like a like a pile of dirty laundry." You know, that's, that's exactly what he looked like too. You know, and it's just and it, he embodies that in the role of like this guy who's been in jail, who just got out, and is kind of like, you know, you see him adjusting to to like the you know the, this world and like just sitting and li- kind of listening to Ordell when he's talking about you know the gun sales and you know and he's kind of quiet in the background. He's a little like tentative, you know. Yeah. Um, you, you know that he's like he's about that life you know you know that it, it comes down to it he, he'll do whatever he needs to do but he's still kind of you see that kind of hesitation and he, he clearly yeah you said he's a number two you know he's, he doesn't mind kind of being the number two and he, he's also smart enough to when melanie comes to him and basically is trying to convince him to double cross ordell you know he doesn't hesitate he goes straight to ordell and it's like hey you know you, you trust melanie you know and let's <laughs> he's almost the perfect number two you know just a dude who will follow orders not going to be too ambitious. Um, keeps his eye out for the boss. 
Um, he's almost. Oh, he's no number two like uh, in Austin Powers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. The scene, a scene I love, one of my favorite scenes, uh, what, what I love about this movie, and it's a, it's a kind of movie that I think gets better the more you watch it because I think the plot is the plot is less important to the movie than like than the characters which I think is is uh, the case in a lot of uh, Quentin Tarantino movies mm-hmm. but there's, there's a scene with with Ordell and, and Lewis uh, after he has sex with Melanie and uh, and basically he's like yeah you know he explained to him that he had sex with Melanie and he's like uh, is that, you know is that your, your girlfriend like trying to figure <laughs> out the nature of their relationship and he's, he's like you fucked her didn't you and he's like yeah, yeah, I did. He's, he's like, he's like, yeah. I mean, you, you, you fucked her when you thought she was my girlfriend, and like, like, yeah, you know, I did. He's like, I, I did feel. He's like, well, I hope you felt appropriately bad for it. <laughs> and he's like, I did. He's like, okay, okay. And it's like, it's just a hilarious scene because <laughs> it's like, you know, like, like again, you have the humor in in, in Ordell's character. It's mm. like, it makes him such a likable villain, you know. Um, and uh, and again, he still has even power in that situation. It's like, even in a situation where you know Lewis fucked with one you know he kind of like we we at the audience know he kind of basically threw the alley oop for that because mm. he whispers to her as he's leaving is basically like yo take care take care of my man um yeah but but yeah he has power in, in all those different situations yeah just shows you I mean how just uh, this or I mean Sam's character man just just he's like an all time evil dude on on of cinema like he should be in that conversation because his his influence on everyone's lives in this movie is just so like ridiculous and um one thing i was going to say too is um the 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 like it's funny because the way they present some of the characters in this movie, sometimes like it was almost like, like everybody had a bit of, of a culpability of how evil, like how much evil was being on the screen, and um, uh, like the cops, the two cops, like when they came across Jackie, and uh, you knew there was like. There was no legitimacy to like I I thought they were dirty cops to be honest when they first came up like when they first came up to her I thought I wasn't quite clear in, in the beginning where the dope came from that they found on her I thought that they planted it um, I don't know if that was purposely kind of alluded to and then they kind of cleared it up but um, I think yeah I think they made that in, they made it kind of ambiguous for a while because yeah. even with um. Ray Nicoletti, uh, Michael Keaton's character, like they they kind of make it unclear whether or not you know his motives are. Does he like Jackie? Does he have a thing for Jackie? You know, uh, they go out to dinner at one point. Like she's you know he's calling her regularly, mm. um, and it's not until later on in the movie that you realize like no he's a you know uh, the only thing he cares about is is getting Ordell because she basically at some point you know says hey you know half a million dollars and they have the, the whole conversation. He's like hey and he's like no one would miss it. He has a, she has the same conversation actually with with max as well right. um and and he and he's like but that's not what we do he basically he immediately turns serious he's like you know we don't do that you know this this is about getting that arrest and like and then you realize okay he's he's more but he's a straight-laced guy he's, right. he's he just wants to get ordell um but you're right they they kind of play it a little bit uh 
you know, mysterious in the beginning, so you don't really kind of know where these characters are coming from. But yeah, like they're, I mean, this the, this casting, I mean, Michael Keaton, obviously a big name at the time, but yeah, I mean, he, he plays this role well. Like, I, again, I mean, always with Samuel L. Jackson, um, Chris Tucker, even like the small role he played was exactly <laughs> what it, it needed to be. It. Right. Um, yeah. And Pam Greer, uh, this is so amazing. This film should mm-hmm. have been nominated for an Oscar for this film. Well, you know, Robert Forrester was. He was nominated for yeah. Best Supporting Actor for this. Yeah, that was the only acting, uh, I think, Oscar nomination. They may have been the only nomination that the movie got at all. Which is ridiculous. The yeah. Golden the Golden Globes had them for best nominated for best performance by an actress. So there you go. And uh, best Jackson. performance by an actor. Yeah, with Sam Jackson. Um, I mean, those those they got a few nominees. They won. I don't know what twenty twenty awards are, but but Pam Grier did win best actress. Mm. Yeah, should have been nominated for an Oscar for that though. You know, I, it was. I, I looked like, at she, the other she people. A lot of levels. Yeah, mm-hmm. I looked at the other people who were nominated. It was like it wasn't. It wasn't a, like a, a year where you can say, "Oh well, like, you know, it was a, a banner year, and everyone else had to." Right. I think that that year went to uh, Helen Hunt. <laughs> Helen Hunt. What for contact? Oh, she in contact? Not contact. Um, right, as good as it gets. With, uh, as good as it gets. Oh, that, that's a good one. Though. That's yeah, she was good in that. The other nominees, though, mm-hmm. uh, Pam Greer deserved to get a spot in there. You know, mm-hmm. the, no, the other nominees that were in that category were not mind blowing enough to to uh, eliminate. Pam Greer from being you know nominated for that role, uh, so I thought that was kind of a travesty. Mm-hmm. Still, I mean, that was way before we had these protests about you know white casting and white, you know the whiteouts and stuff like that, and black actors and actresses not getting their you know when when did a was it Halle Berry and uh, oh um, <clears throat> when did they get their wins finally? Monsters Ball and. Um... Yeah. yeah, that was years later. That was in the 2000s. Denzel, Denzel Washington, you know, yeah. So. Yeah, Quentin specifically said, Quentin Tarantino said he was upset when she didn't get the uh, the nomination because he was hoping she would win the award and be the first black uh, lead actress to win for that role. Dude, dude she, she goes from, like, you know, seductress to schemer to scared. To victim, angry, from victim, too. Victim, like, she covers so many... <laughs> Parts like spe- of the spectrum, like it's ridiculous. Well, the best part, like the best moment for me for her in the film, was the beginning when she says almost nothing. Like all this stuff is happening to her in the system. She gets arrested. She gets, you know, booked. She goes to prison and all this stuff, and you don't hear a word. She doesn't say a peep except for when she's in court and she says to the judge. You know how you know when is her case going to be seen, whatever. But that's the only time you like. It was almost like she was, like she was just like resigned to accept what was happening. But at the same time, she was busy, kind of seeing how, like thinking about how she could use this system against the same people who put her where she's at. Like it was very, like I. It's hard to get a lot out of nothing. She got a lot out of nothing. She yeah. just—it was quiet, man. It was deep. And then, and then she disappears from the movie for yeah. about twenty minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, isn't this Jackie Brown? Where's she at? By the way, um, because we, we we talked about um a couple of songs, but we skipped over one that 
repeats about three times in this film, mm-hmm. and I can't remember when it first shows up. Um, Sissy Strut by the Meters. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Yo, this is like, first of all the Meters. Like I discovered them myself like I don't know, five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, man, they got some like strutting music. Like this song, this song <laughs> yeah. in particular. But like you just like listen to their stuff, and you're walking down the street, you have a bounce to your step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one of those songs. There's some songs in the movie that like. Like I said, like they're they're screaming at the audience, and they're just like, "Hey, listen to me. This is this is what the plot's about." Like, you know, natural high when 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 Jackie comes out, and it's just like it's blatant. Yep. Uh, this is one that's just like it's just cool, dope background music, yeah. but it's like, it, but it's the coolest background music ever. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. What? <laughs> And that's in the vein of like that's like kind of in the vein of the black exploitation movies where you just had these these themes that kind of played throughout, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of feels like a theme throughout the movie, you know. That that song. It was, I mean, it's walking music, man. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, what I'm saying that's, I mean, if the one of the best things that ever came out of black exploitation movies were, um, walking music and fighting music, and, um. You know, like it was almost like we were like it was just cool. It was cool to like to 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 be like in the seventies, and they and they had this way of conveying like style in 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 profile through music, which was kind of cool. Um, and then all these other mainstream films started trying to steal that that thing. I mean. You look at Dolomite. Dolomite was yeah. basically exactly that. I mean, as bad as his films were, people stole from him a lot of a lot of the stuff that he was doing. Absolutely. So I love I love the fact that Quentin, like you know, Quentin gets sometimes gets a bad rap sometimes um, because, and I think because um, people aren't used to seeing a white dude with this this much flavor. In his films, and I'm like, for me, I don't really care. Like, it doesn't matter to me as long as he gets it accurate within the scope of what he's trying to do, and it's not he's not, you know, exploiting the situation. I think he's done a f- fantastic job at kind of creating these vehicles for like these interracial interactions and these re- these these like what I like these tributes to. Um, cause I'm a big fan of seventies m- m- movies as well. So, um, Hey, can't yeah, hate, I, hate the play. Don't hate the game. You know, hate the game, you know? So, yeah, I think, I think that, uh, you know, and that gets into the whole, like the N word usage, yeah. you know, which is like the conversation that always comes up with, with Quentin Tarantino and yep. in his films. Um, and in this movie, you know, the N word is used a lot, Quite uh, a lot. Yeah. Like, like it is in, in, in a bunch of his other movies. Um, and you know, I, I think the difference between between this movie and, say, uh, uh, Pulp Fiction or uh, Django or other movies is that to me in this movie, there's, it's kind of hard to say that it's excessively used or it's used unnecessarily. Right. Like I think in some of his other movies, like the criticism has been, "Hey, you're writing feels like you're writing the N word in there just to like right. just to just to do it, just because like." You know, and, and there's piece there's been arguments, oh, if you kinda of say it more it desensitizes. Uh but in this movie it's only the black characters right. who use it. Primarily Ordell, 
Right. You know, um, and you know Chris Tucker's character, and like Jackie Brown says it one time in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, it's still used like thirty-three times in the movie. <laughs> you know, still, <laughs> still more than you would like Lock. naturally expect. But it, mm-hmm. you know, but that is kind of part of his style. But I, I do think this is his his blackest movie. You know, I think oh. all, all of his movies yeah. have black characters in them. Sam Jackson's in like half of his movies. Yeah. But uh, but this I think is his most clearly black movie and. And there's nothing in there that's that's at least to my mind shameless or is like doesn't feel organic or natural. It feels like exploitative. Right. It feels, it feels natural. Yeah. And um, you know, look, Samuel Jackson has done plenty of movies that weren't um, Tarantino movies in which he is known to utter a motherfucker or two. Um, so. Uh, it's kind of hard to, like, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine him not doing it. So, and if it wasn't for like the she, the the Marvel universe stuff, you know, I probably would have. He probably would be still doing it. He, but he, I think he's he hasn't done it in a while. So you know, I got to get it somewhere. So yeah, you can't have a. Samuel Jackson movie without him saying motherfucker at least once. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, um, um, but I think well we, we kind of brushed upon the scene earlier, but uh, we have to talk about it, which is um mm. when uh when Overdell finally goes to uh, Jackie's place and starts like interrogating her. Oh. And he comes in. He's just asking a bunch of questions, like nonchalantly at first, and then all of a sudden he slowly turns the light down. That shit was crazy. Oh. Yeah. Um, and the then he comes to yeah, yeah, had the gloves and before he got in the house, and then like, and you see the silhouettes, and all of a sudden you see this gun cock, and she's like, she's like, what is that? They exchange there, and he's like, he's like, what do you think it is? I think it's a gun pressed up against my my ball, my dick, or whatever. And he's like, get your motherfucking hands off my motherfucking neck. I was like, oh man, boss lady, boss lady. Yeah, I love how they how they how they have that side by side with. With that, and then Max discovering that his gun's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like it builds up, and then he's like, he going, he's going for the, in the you know glove compartment, and it's like, oh, his gun's missing. There it is. <laughs> and she doesn't even, and, and when he turns the lights down twice, and yeah. she doesn't mention it at all. She just calmly walks back in the into the living room, turns the lights back up. And, he decides, you know what? Let me turn them back down again. Hold on. It's like, yeah, that, that was a dope scene. That was that was really fun. That was fun. I love the gloves. And then, and then later on, she's like, "Shut your raggedy ass up!" Sit <laughs> your <laughs> raggedy ass, your raggedy ass down. <laughs> oh man, yeah, so good. And you know what's funny about this? Because we have a part of the you know the podcast where we talk about what the fuck moments, and we oh. haven't really talked about them yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like you know, relatively speaking, this didn't have that many compared to like say, Pulp Fiction or other shit we talked mm. about. Well, um, I think I think the Melanie scene, even though you know maybe it's predictable that he's going to do something, I, I, I think like Sam Jackson's character, like we kind of ex- like when Sam when when Odell's talking to to Lewis later, he's like, you could just hit her in the mouth. <laughs> but I think you kind of expected something like that to happen, because um, that's really the like the most 
like you mentioned Quentin Tarantino, like and his and and this violence in all of his movies, this mm-hmm. like, ridiculous amount of violence in all of his movies. This is probably his least violent movie. Mm-hmm. Um, like a lot of the deaths that happen are kind of implied. Like you don't even see her get get shot. Like you right. like you see him pull the gun out, and then you see her kind of off screen, like kind of fall, I guess. Yeah. But you don't even see is she dead? Like if, if and even when he's having the conversation with Odell, and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure she's I'm pretty sure she's dead. <laughs> And you can't tell whether he's certain or he's just kind of trying to downplay the fact that he killed her. Um, <laughs> but but we, we as an audience don't see it happen. Just like we as an audience don't see him. We see him shoot Ordell, but we don't see it, right? Like right. you just kind of hear uh, Chris Tucker uh, kill, kill, uh, shoot Beaumont, rather. Uh, mm. You know, you, you hear him just uh, kind of go, man, you, you kind of hear him start to talk. <laughs> and, then the, and, then the, and then the shots fire and it's and the camera's so far away, mm. you know, that, that it, it's such a, a, a contrast from like, Blood splattering everywhere on Kill in Kill Bill, or mm. you know, blood splattering everywhere in the back of the car in Pulp Fiction. You know, uh, you know, it's just it's so so much more subtle. The only even like hint of it that we see is when he shoots Lewis, and even that shot from like outside of the car, you just see the, you know, it's Both it's a, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I I still think the Melanie moment is a is a what the fuck moment because it's it, it was still in, when I saw it the first time it was still kind of like oh shit. You know, like I, you could see it building up, but I didn't see him just killing her and leaving her there. Yeah, that that to me was a little bit odd. <clears throat> Another what the fuck moment for me, which is technically not a moment, but it's still what the fuck, is Odell's hair. That shit was that was a what the fuck moment for me. The whole movie, because every time you turn around, it was a different style. It was either down la here or it was braided. I'm like, really. Seriously, like I, I, I want to know how he came up with that. I think, it, and I think it works for the character because I think yeah. it does make him. It makes him stand out. It feels like it's like it's consistent with what Ordell like how he would be. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his his, his clothing, it just it just feels like he's someone who's kind of he's showy. He doesn't have a ton of money, you know, like but <laughs> but but he but he but he wants to make sure he looks good and and, and the way that he thinks he looks good. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. In his own style, so to me, it kind of makes sense for his character, and and it adds to like the the menacing kind of quality to him. Mm-hmm. Another what the fuck moment to me was the beginning of the movie, <clears throat> when him and Robert De Niro sit on the couch and they're watching whatever the fuck that is. What what was that they were watching? American it's commercials guns. for yeah, guns like commercials or yeah, chicks with guns. Stuff. That shit was crazy. Yeah, what was the quote? Um, most popular gun in American crime, the uh, uh, Tech Nine. Tech Nine. The AK forty-seven. <laughs> when oh. you absolutely got to kill every motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except no substitutes. I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you what the fuck moment um, is. Essentially, just Ordell with. First of all, do you notice like how old she is in the picture? That um, yeah. I'm looking at, she's like, oh, I was fourteen. So she's fourteen. He's known this. And then the other girl he has, that's Simone, like she's 19. I'm like, yeah. Um, he has some R. Kelly shit gonna, going we're, on. We're gonna, yeah, we're going to brush over this real quick or what? We're going to talk about it. Yeah. Um, so that was some shady kind of gross stuff mm. there. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if you, I don't know who was watching this movie. Another what the fuck moment for me was uh, someone's watching this TV show or movie and it's just like just two white people, white guys, like, Read the paper. Read the paper, and he's smacking this woman with the newspaper. Did you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow, man. That is some fifties 
misogyny. Yeah, yeah. The TV <laughs> that they were watching was kind of some fucked up shows, man. Some fucked up movies. There was the other one where I, I don't know whether it was like some, some kind of Spanish telenovela where a woman was getting smacked in the face every few minutes. Mm-hmm. I was just like, all right, okay. I mean, I don't know. it's. We also talked about this because I, I, I kind of want to talk about this because we're talking about Tarantino and Aladdin director. Um, like the cinematography in this, like I thought, was pretty awesome. Mm. Um, from like that side frame in the beginning where you're following Jackie, um, they do it later on in the film. Um, just like simple stuff when she, when Jackie, uh, when Lua, uh, not Lou, Max is at Jackie's place, mm-hmm. and uh, he's making her coffee, and they just like zoom in on her pulling two mugs out of the cabinet, zoom in on her pouring the coffee. Like it's very detailed the stuff he does. Um, counting the bills when um, oh, yeah. the cop is count raised counting the bills and he's marking them and they just like you could just show it once and then like go back to the conversation but as they're talking like they just flipping another bill marking it moving on. so I thought um, yeah what he did with this was pretty awesome and there's other, other yeah. scenes and there's other other things he does that are there's, awesome. yeah there's a close up shot of Melanie's feet after she makes the drinks mm-hmm. Lewis. Close um, to his class, right? Yeah, yeah. And you see him kind of look at it and, and like consider like whether he's going to say something about it. Uh, <laughs> it, kind of it but he just grabs it and pulls it yeah, away from her feet. Again, all this is said without dialogue, right? It's like, mm-hmm. and, and that's and he, that also is similar to, um, you know, he has a, a similar foot shot in uh, in Kill Bill, you know, wiggling a big toe, whatever, wiggling your toe when when um, Uma Thurman's character is trying to you know regain her strength in her legs. So he kind of has that like. You know that in this in a lot of his films, those close-up shots of feet. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, close shots with with Max and um, and Ordell when they're talking as well, where like they're just they're going back and forth, and then they do a super super close-up shot on on uh, on, on Max as well. Mm. But yeah, I mean the cinematography is Quentin. It's always unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, oh man, I, there's so many situations. Like uh, he does a lot of slow zooms, which I noticed, but like the slow zoom on um, Ordell when he's trying to when he's figuring out what happened to his money. He's in the, the oh, band with uh, yeah. Lewis, and it's slowly from behind him as he's facing Lewis, comes up <laughs> on him, like... and, and he's like, "It's Jackie." Like, I thought <laughs> yeah. that was, yeah. Like, you, you you could choose to do that mad quick, like, "Oh yeah, Jackie did it," but they showed the intent and the thought process in his head through the cinematography. So, yeah, man, I'm not gonna go into every single one I saw, but yeah, still. You know, we didn't mention the fact that there's a certain Mr. Keaton in this movie who. Um, was uh, young, er, and it was kind of cool to see him in, in the in this movie. I forgot he was in it, to be honest. Um, and I was just looking at his filmography, and it was very interesting because, like, prior to this, he was doing all these very good guy roles, like a lot of stuff that was like softer and. Um, and except for maybe um, the horror movie that he did, which was um, Pacific Heights, I think it was, which I think was 1990. Um, he did a bunch of the, like these really soft roles, so to see him play like in a role in a movie like this was kind of unusual because the movies that he did prior, right prior to this, were um, see he did Speechless. He did the paper. <laughs> he did one good cop. He did much ado about nothing. It's like all these very soft movies, and then 
from Jackie Brown on, he starts to do all these different. It's like he found his like he wanted to do some serious stuff. So right after this, he did Desperate Measures with Andy Garcia. Mm. Um, and Out of Sight's got to be in there somewhere. Out of Sight, what? yeah. I what, think what, what, what's that? Out of out Sight. Of sight. Oh, out of sight. So, and out of sight, he actually plays. It's it's so both this uh, this this movie and uh, out of sight are adaptations from from Elmore Leonard books. And Ray Nicoletti, Ray Nicoletti's character is actually in both. So he plays Ray Nicoletti in that movie as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, he kind of falls off the, the the map for a while, but he's kind of had a big comeback recently. Yeah, he's done um, a lot, a lot. Did you see? Well, besides besides uh, Birdman. Uh, What's that? Oh, yeah, Birdman. That was that was kind of like what, what what Tarantino usually does with with actors is kind of what happened with him in Birdman, where yep. he kind of was in that and then that got nominated for Oscars and then he had a resurgence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, but like, and also just the, the range and the stuff he's doing. Um, what was it? The good guys the or good the other guys? guys? The, the other the, the other, other guys. guys. Yeah, he plays the captain in that. And yeah, <laughs> he's quoting he's quoting TLC. TLC. Just <laughs> <laughs> like, an awesome role, and then. Um, his uh, Spider-Man stuff now playing, you know. And yeah. he's also supposed to be in uh, another Marvel movie, Morbius, mm-hmm. coming up in 2021. So he's his career is doing quite well. He's doing really well. It, yeah, it's like it was almost like uh, Jackie Brown had a delayed reaction because it's like you said, he's like usually for like. Um, for Tarantino movies, he brings you in, and then maybe a year or two later, suddenly your career is blossoming again. You're doing all these things that you never thought you could do. I think that's the reason why it happens because Tarantino does he 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 never casts you in things that um, he puts you in places where he knows your strengths will be good, and lets you just kind of go and showcase it, like like. You know Samuel Jackson is a great actor, but he can come he can come into a Tarantino film and just let loose and just say yeah I got this I'm gonna you know give me the ball I got this you know, whereas some char- some directors will re- you know they only want you to do certain things, and um, that could be a little, I think that's probably why so many actors like working with Tarantino, because so, he. I mean, Sorry, uh, before before we get to our, our major questions, it's yep. towards like Tarantino, like because he's been a very controversial director throughout his career. Yep. Um, like where this is a huge conversation. Maybe this is a separate cast, but um, where do you think he ends up in the pantheon of like great directors? With also like a, a smaller hmm. body of work than a lot of directors. Well, he's got nine now, yeah. um, and he said at one point early in his career he was going to do ten and, and be done. I don't think that's really going to be the case at this point. <laughs> yeah. um, he said that early, early on. Um, I think he's going to be up there. I think he's going to be near the top. You know, I think he's going to be there with the Scorsese's, the Spielbergs. I think he's going to be right in that conversation um, because, uh, you know, I, I think I, I, I actually really like this movie. This is one of my favorite Tarantino movies, partly because it's so not Tarantino-like <laughs> in some ways. But a lot of his other movies are very – they're just so original, right? They're so over-the-top, kind of dramatic um, – they don't take place in the real world, right? They take place in these like fantasy worlds that's really only Quentin Tarantino's world, where like mm. there's you know ultra violence, there's this insane dialogue with these characters. The characters are super cool. You kind of want to like 
you want to hang out with these characters. Right. And um, there's such a style to all those movies, no matter where, whether he puts them in, you know, uh, in, in slave days or he puts them in Nazi Germany. Um, you know, it, it, it's it, it's you can still kind of see his stamp on it. And I think that that's what's going to kind of make his, his movies last forever and make him kind of iconic. There's a lot of, you know, directors that have a certain style, but, you know, if you look at, you, you could look at some of their movies and go, oh, they directed that? I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's the case with, with Tarantino. I think this might be the only movie, really. This might be the only movie you could look and go, oh, Tarantino did, did, did uh, Jackie Brown. Um, and even there, it's kind of a stretch because uh, you can still see his, his imprint on everything. So I, I think, yeah, I think in the pantheon of directors, he's going to be up there. I think, you know, you got, you got to go Scorsese. You got to go Spielberg. Of our generation, I don't know who else you would put in there. Um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> he's definitely, well, he gets put in that conversation for right, as well. all of those reasons. Plus, he's, again, he's one of the, he's one of the only directors that still pays homage to past, um, past Hollywood. In, in his stylized um, forms, and I think that is really important because um, a lot of the younger f- filmmakers that are coming up, and a lot of even fans, don't watch. They don't watch Casablanca. They don't watch uh, Mean Streets. They don't watch Raging Bull. They don't. So, in order for them to get exposed to any of that styled those or any of those kind of stories or any of those types of stories or through directors like Tarantino who are willing to experiment and and kind of bring forward some of that those 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 techniques and he's yeah I mean he's definitely going to be top 10 um Directors of all time. Um, I Man, think I gotta, think you have I gotta, to. I got fifty greatest directors, and what they got? Oh, they got number one uh, is Hitchcock. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a I'm a Hitchcock fan. You got Orson Welles. Um, some people I don't recognize, like John Ford and Howard Hawks. Oh no, Howard Hawks. Martin Scorsese, Kurosawa. Of course. Which I don't know if I've yeah. seen any. <laughs> Yeah, but he's up there simply because so many filmmakers um, look for him. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I recognize the name. Um, Francis Ford Coppola, Spielberg, obviously. Um, and there was another one that jumped out at me. Woody Allen. <laughs> Woody Allen. Yeah. Woody Allen. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I mean, I'm not. I don't think I'll, I'll put this guy up there, but I am a fan of a handful of his movies, which is um, Guy Ritchie. Mm. I yeah. know he's not he's probably not in this conversation but that's one of my oh Stanley Kubrick yeah yeah Stanley I mean so. contemporary you got David Fincher as well Fincher mm-hmm. Coen yeah. Brothers Ron Howard Ron Howard um, Spike Lee Spike uh, yeah um, so I think with, Nolan with is climbing that, climbing that chart as well so who's that? Nolan Oh yeah. Well, how, how, what's his body? I need to see his body work. I mean, I know he has yeah, a he's, bunch of films that were big. Yeah. What is that diluted by? A lot of these guys have some terrible films. I don't well think he has film. a bad film. I think he's. I think he's kind of 
kind of been, been doing it pretty right. Yeah. Well, he's got the new one that's hopefully hopefully gets released. Tenet. But <clears throat> yeah, with Denzel's son. And yeah, that. John Mike uh, John Henry Washington. So 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 our our questions will direct towards our guest today. Mm-hmm. You want you want you want to break off the first one for him, Dan? Sure. So <clears throat> the first question is: um, Would Tom Hanks? be able to be in this movie if so um would he make the movie better so no he he, he could not be in this movie <laughs> um and, and the answer is, is is easy because there's an interview in 1997 with um tarantino charlie rose interview where he's talking to him about casting mm-hmm. and he specifically asks him about why he he, he uh, interviews or why he brings back these these actors from you know from the past and he goes into into long detail about it. Basically, says these guys. Have, there's a lot of people who are great. I'm not doing it to be to be the cool guy who brings people back. I'm doing it because Hollywood has a list of names who they put on in, for every year, and there's an A list of like ten names mm-hmm. for every every movie. There's a B list. You know, he's like for every single role, whether it's a character actor or a lead role, there's the same list. And it's the same people, and some people rotate in and out every few years, but it's the same list. And he's like, I I remember people. I don't. I don't go off of that list. I'm a. I'm a film guy. I remember guys from the '70s who killed it in the '70s, right. and guys who killed it in the '80s, and they're still killing it. He's like I, Robert Forrester's killing it in these really shitty movies that he he watches right. that no one else has ever seen. Um, and so Tom Hanks's name was thrown out there. He said, "Yeah, you know Tom Hanks. He's a great actor. He's an amazing actor. And um, you know, would I love to work with him? Yeah, maybe. You know, if it makes sense for the role. Um, and you know, if he wanted Tom Hanks, he would get Tom Hanks. Right. Essentially, what he said." Um, and I think that Tarantino, especially at that point in his career, I mean, Pulp Fiction, you know, people were talking about it even then as revolutionary, changing cinema. He could have gotten anyone he wanted, which is why he got Robert De Niro in the playing Lewis. It's like he could get anyone he wanted in any role. And he didn't inter- he didn't uh, audition Pam Greer. He didn't audition Robert Forrester. They were given the roles. Right. He wrote it. He wrote it with them in mind. So, no, I don't think Tom Hanks makes sense in here. I think. The only argument you could make is if you played the, the Max Cherry character, and I don't, I don't see it. I don't think he fits it. I think he's too. I think he, he's he, cast he's, almost. Self, he's too much of a personality to play that role in the way that it would need to be to be pulled off. Mm-hmm. And I think he's too like, like you said before, uh, Mac, Max Cherry's kind of invisible. Right. He's understated. It allows Ordell to not see it until it's too late. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, Tom Hanks for us as an audience. Was, is too visible. He's too. He's, his star is too big. And this is '97. This, this would have been after Forrest Gump. You know, Philadelphia. I think was around then. So this would have been like peak Tom Hanks. No, there's no way he could have been in this in this movie. Wow. Okay. All right. All right. I. I have to agree. I don't. <clears throat> uh, when you when you put it that way. Yeah. I mean, jam. I mean. <laughs> jeez. I don't know. You you had to. Uh, well, so obviously he has that, um, I guess that personality that you talked about. Um, yeah, if I was to put him in a role, it would be Max. And the only way I can compare, only example I can think of to like justify that, is um, is Road to Perdition, and that's not even a great example. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well. No. So you, so you win, Segna. <laughs> You want to run down the second question? 
Yes. Uh, um, so Which I already know the answer to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Could uh, Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven be in this soundtrack? Actually, hmm. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I, th I think that... You I got mean, another story I, I, about uh, Tarantino inter interviewing Eric Clapton and saying, no, if I wanted that, I'd, I'd put him in there? <laughs> I, think, I, I, <laughs> I think if he wanted it, he could have gotten it in there. Um, they, I mean, obviously he sticks you know, thematically uh, for, the, for the most part. He's got a 70s R&B soul funk vibe going. Um, there is a Johnny Cash record in there. The scene mm -hmm. where uh, Ordell yeah. goes in there and it's really ominous. Uh, you know, you can't switch out that song with Tears in Heaven? No. <laughs> what about as um, after he's he's shot um, homeboy in the trunk and he's just driving off down the road? Could he play there? <laughs> that would that would be funny. <laughs> I, I think I think uh, I think seems to be the answer every time we ask this question. But yeah, it would just be tongue in cheek. Kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's no emotionality in this movie. It's too cool. Yeah. It's too cool to have like a you know. Yeah. A, Everyone in the movie is, is too cool. We don't ever really get to a point where we're really feeling super, super sad or super emotional. Um, so I don't, I don't see it in there. All right. Oh well, yeah. We might have to change the song and the, and the the actor we're using for season four for these questions. Well, we do have the <laughs> second part to the first question, but I didn't ask it because should I ask that? Nah, I think the answer is also no for for Will Smith. Yeah, so true. we'll ask him next time. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, maybe so, maybe if we do Django. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do we think about the, the songs here? What's your favorite song, and what song do you think encompasses the feel and the story of this uh, movie? I, there's okay. So I think across 110th Street is is the obvious answer in a way because, like I said, it plays. It's like the theme of the movie. It's like if you think of it as almost like a as a black exploitation film. You know, it's like the Shaft theme song, right? It comes on the beginning of the movie, comes on the end, and you literally have the main character in a car driving, singing those those lyrics. So I think it's it's clearly intended to be the the uh, the theme of the of the movie, the theme song of the movie. Um, I think that Natural High, though, like the scene when when mm. um, you know uh, Max first sees uh, Jackie, I think that's that's pretty huge just because it says so much. It, it it defines the rest of the movie and, and the rest of their relationship. Because, you know, like there's nothing he does. He doesn't actually make. He doesn't ever shoot his shot. You know, and he doesn't ever actually mm. make a real move on her. Right. You know, like, and he's so understated. But that song says so much. You know, as soon as she's walking out, and like, and if you look at the lyrics of that song as well, it literally says like, you know, I, like I'm falling for you and I don't even know you, and mm. uh, and so it, it defines like the nature of how he feels so quickly that allows us as an audience to buy. Uh, okay, he he's he's willing to to now like go against Ordell and and risk getting caught by the cops and do all this stuff for her, even though it doesn't seem like it's consistent with, with the kind of character that you expect from this guy. Right. So, so I think so, that song is is critical. So is that also your favorite song? Or well, there's also Delphonics. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't I blow your mind? I mean, I it's your mind? it's hard to pick one in this movie because they're so. Like I said, the, the the songs in the movie are a character. You know, they're not they're not just songs in the movie. Like they're they're saying something. Um, so it's hard to to just say you know what's the one. I think if you cho have to choose one, it's across 110th Street. But there's so many um, pieces in there that that, that are significant. Well, I, 
I think um, also to that um, that one scene where they first played "Did Not Blow Your Mind." Right before they played "La La Means I Love You." Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bonnie, so, she, so she's playing this album on a record, by the way, and um, I, that that actually brought me back to like you know, not not that I mean I had records growing up and my mom had them at a record player, but even just this, the process of listening to an album, mm-hmm. like yeah. of one artist in or like songs in a row as opposed to you know, the streaming we have today. Um, I really like that scene. Um, they even talk about playing albums as opposed to CDs. Yeah. <laughs> he even went into a Sam Goody's and got a tape, a tape, <laughs> a cassette tape. I was like, uh-oh, that's dope. But, um, yeah, I mean, this, so this one's like, it's just the, the level of songs on this. I'm going to even have um, Baby Love by the Supremes in here. Um, Pam Cruz song is on there. She's got a song yeah. from you know, that she sang on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, I was like, I, I don't, I didn't catch it. I don't remember when it played, um, but I saw it in the, in the set in the uh, soundtrack. Roy, Roy um, Ayers, I don't yeah. think we mentioned him specifically. Yeah, Roy Ayers, love that the, the Aragon track that we mentioned. Yeah, earlier, Aragon. Coffee. Um, and and after actually in the second credit, the second song in the credits is called Monte Carlo Nights, which plays earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, Elliot Newton, Tiki and Tiki Gods. Um, that that one actually reminded me of Pulp Fiction. Uh, mm. Miser yeah. Lou um, theme song that had that same vibe for me. Mm. Uh, How do we not mention Street Life? Street Life, Street Life. Mini Ripperton, Inside My oh, Love. Inside. Yeah. So, oh, uh, Bill Withers, who is he and what is he to you? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, I love that song. This oh, and then the Foxy track we mentioned, it was Holy Matrimony Letter to the Firm. Like, I forgot how dope her flow was, man. Yeah. 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 So many good songs. This is like. You make a playlist off of this, man. You you you're good. You're really good. Yeah. So I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, those first two songs I play in, in the, the, I mean, those, I love Cross Hundred Tenth Street. I love Sissy Strut. Mm-hmm. Um, can never go wrong with some Bill Withers. Uh, so yeah, I don't think I can choose a favorite. Um, we we can go with Hundred Tenth Street for the obvious answer for the song that encompasses you know mm-hmm. this film. Yeah, I would say that's true. Um, Cross 110th Street to me is is the track. And, yeah. Um, yeah. But I do love me some Street Life for my favorite songs. Oh, do we have to ask a segment on the last question? Is yeah. It, is uh, it automatic? Is it automatic? What what do what is what is your rating for this film? Yeah, of course. Out, out of ten. Um, like a three? What? Four? <laughs> <laughs> four and a half, probably, bro. It's probably be a uh, eight and a half. I put it. I put it eight and a half. I think that there's some problems with the movie, but um, I think it's a little slow, and like you probably could have cut some things out of the movie. So it's a little bit long. Um, but uh, you know, and and some of the elements of Tarantino that like more more stylistic and uh, that he did a little better, I think, in some of his other movies are lacking here. I think it's a little less lacking in like. Um, in uh, excitement and I think that the that the the big payoff at the end and the ending of the movie aren't the best like it's like it kind of climaxes with uh with with Ordell getting shot by by Ray which kind of doesn't make any sense because it's like why did why did Pam Greer go to the police at the very end mm-hmm. some there's some things that there's some plot holes in there that don't really make sense <laughs> yeah. and those characters yeah. those, those characters never cross paths beforehand like the cops and Odell Nope. Yeah, that's a long time. So. And why did he walk in the room like when he first yeah. walked? Why did he walk in first? He could have just sent in Max Cherry first, so that way yeah. 
But why, why did she rehearse pulling the gun out if the yeah. cops were there? You know, um, like why why was she so able to to switch to go to Billingsley to change her clothing and the, and the cops didn't think anything of it? Yeah, but like she was gonna in the middle of this this thing that they'd planned all of a sudden change. So I think there's a, there's some plot holes that, yeah. that are not great, but um, which which take it from being like a great you know nine or a ten to me um, to being about eight eight and a half. Uh, but that being said, I, I love it because I love the soundtrack. I love the characters. I, I, if I, that's why it's the third and fourth watching are better because if I'm not sitting there thinking about the plot and going, oh, the bag switch and how's that going to work? And, um, and I'm just enjoying like the dialogue and I'm just enjoying Lewis and Melanie and like all these characters, then, um, yeah, I can just appreciate it in a different way. Yeah. I threw up, I threw up an eight in there. I think it's a solid number. I, I really enjoyed the performances, obviously the soundtrack. Story's pretty cool. I like my black exploitation. I like my my film noir. So, um, I gave it probably an eight. It was it was a fun movie to list to watch and a lot of great performances. And the soundtrack's dope. I mean, what else can you ask for? Chaka, Chaka. Um, all right. Uh, Sag, what are you up to? What's uh, what's next for you? So I'm going to be doing uh, later today. I'm going to be doing a Instagram live uh, interview um, on production. Someone will be asking <coughs> my production style, uh, artist Rocky Snyder. So I think by the time this airs, I will have done some the Instagram live interview. But uh, I'll be interviewing with um, Rocky Snyder, talking about hip hop production and and uh, and recording in that process. And uh, and then getting into that last couple episodes of Michael Jordan's Last Dance. Oh my God, that is so, so good, man! Yeah, it's been amazing. I wish there was a soundtrack to that. We could do that because that would be dope. The soundtrack is actually really, really awesome on that. A lot of really dope '90s hip hop. Yeah. Um. It's yeah. I'm gonna miss that when that's done. It's, yeah. It's been a nice thing. Look forward to every Sunday. Yeah, I like. Wish it was somewhere I could buy it so I could have it and watch it every so often, you know. I just um, <laughs> I uh, I um, watched that. Uh, I think I binged that this week while I was at work, and I sit on my computer, my work computer, and have this one open, and just like watching, caught up on it because I was like four or five episodes behind. So I'm all caught up, ready to go. Yeah, tonight's gonna be dope. I, I'm looking forward to it. Before we wrap, I got to give you guys a parting shot. Oh no! What, what? Apple Express, you guys are some haters. <laughs> some haters. Say what? Haters. Haters Capital on what? H haters. Pineapple Express. Oh man, we're man, talking you about guys are some haters. <laughs> oh, oh. They're real, man. We're just telling our feelings. What, what you got? Maybe you should have been a guest on that. One. <laughs> man. That's 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 up there. That's 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 one of my fa- my favorite Seth Rogen films. I think it's up there with the Forty Year Old Virgin, Knocked Up. You know, uh, I, I think I think it's up there with the Judd Apatow kind of in that series of Super Bad and all those movies. So I, when think we, lost, I, I, I think you just lost all your credibility. We're not going to air this. Episode. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> Instead, we'll just re, re re air something else. So well, what? Everyone should go back and listen to to the review that you guys gave from from. The so last what? Time. What's your rate? What would you rate? What would you rate? You guys gave it, I think Chris gave it a five. Uh, <laughs> it's just, just it's sacrilege. What, eight, what are you eight, talking eight, about? Eight, 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 eight. Hate, 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 hate. <laughs> um, I'd probably give that uh, an eight as well. I mean, 
it's it's not it's not as good of a film. It's a comedy, so it's hard. It's not being made on the same scale as Jackie Brown, but man, that movie James Franco I thought was amazing in that. He hadn't really done anything like that before. He wasn't really a comedic actor like that. You know, he was in like Spider Man and like some that war movie that was pretty terrible. Yeah, but um, he wasn't acting, man. He was just being himself on screen. But we hadn't seen him do that yet. So like, no one had thought of him as a weed guy until that movie. Like before that, he was a dramatic actor, and uh, and so. It, it kind of blew my mind when I saw. It. I was like, "Wow, I've never seen Franco look like this at all." And right, and, well, and, like the, and, and Seth Rogen kind of played the straight man in that movie. Right, just in, kind ten, of out of in ten years, we'll we'll do a recap, and you can be the guest on that one to rebut everything we said. Yeah, <laughs> and I'll give you guys a brownie, and then you know, you guys can rewatch it. What you got going on, Baron? What's, what's happening? Nothing. I'm chilling, man. I'm got nothing. Um, this is a rare time for Darren to have not nothing. Coronavirus has got me in lockdown for the most part, so I haven't really done anything. Um, there's, a, there's a virus going around. Yeah, I heard about something. I'm not sure for whether it's that or diarrhea. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, yeah, nothing. I got nothing for you. What, what about you? That's exciting. Um... <laughs> Uh, I should be doing a, uh, a live stream um, fundraiser for the Shannon in Hoboken on the 30th. Oh, cool. Um, nice. We're still locking down details for that. Um, I have to see. I'm actually looking at an email right now. I'm supposed to be doing a, uh, a show for a Brooklyn venue. Um, trying to lock down a date for that, but hopefully June 8th or something. So got a couple things coming up, and I'm trying to do a lot more shows with these venues. So that uh, you know, while while I'm on there, we can try and raise some money for their staff and stuff like that. Mm, that's cool. Um, <clears throat> I am <clears throat> the only thing I'm actually kind of working on is I want to. There's another podcast I'm I'm talking about possibly doing, and what it would be is um, we talk. We would talk action movies and the best fight scenes in different action movies. Interesting. Yeah. So, or not even just action movies, but the best fight scenes on on film, like so. the ones from Pineapple Express. Yeah, exactly. It, actually, that's where this came <laughs> from. So I was just like, that'd be go. dope, you know. So um, I, I think it'll. We're still theorizing what it'll be, but I think it'll be called Fist Fight. And, uh, you know, we'll do comedies, we'll do dramas, action, you know. So just basically the best fight scene, best fight scenes in, in certain movies. I like that. Is there is there a movie that you uh, you have in mind that, that sparked this, that got you thinking, uh, I want to do this podcast because oh. this, this fight scene is so impactful? So this, this was sparked by J.T. Curtis. His conversation on Facebook about JT? the uh, Star Wars, different Star Wars mm-hmm. lightsaber battles. And I was just like, huh, this is kind of cool. This would be an interesting conversation to continue on a podcast, um, but expand it past that to other, to other movies. So, yeah. So, I just have to figure out, like, how that would be, but... I think it'll be cool. I'm all for talking about fights. 
like you know some slap fights whatever anyway all right uh well psych thanks for being on the podcast of course and uh hearing your your thoughts on jackie brown was really cool um totally wrong about pineapple express but um you know the jackie brown stuff you're all spot on um so i guess that's it for us this week um i'm darren jenkins chris saunders and this was another episode of the download the download see ya Peace.